Uh, I want to uh, warmly welcome you tonight. Uh, we thought that the best way of introducing these few days together would be to actually have an interview with Bill. So that um, that's not a control thing. It's really I just want to draw <laughs> I just want to draw out of Bill um, some of the things I know are very relevant for us, but also who he is and the story um, of Bill's life and of his testimony. We been talking just now about the power of testimony. John Wimber used to say, celebrate what you want to propagate. And I think we're going to celebrate some things tonight. We're going to hear some testimony tonight that we want to see reproduced in our lives and in our ministries. Uh, anyone want to say amen to that? Amen. By the way, you're in an Anglican church, Bill. Is this the first time that you have been in an English Anglican church to minister? Second. Second time. Yeah. Well, something good must have happened the first time. It, it was glorious. It was glorious. Yes, it was Great. Glorious. Well, pray it is glorious again. Bill, um, it's a pleasure Thanks. and a privilege and an honor to have you here. We welcome you uh, in the name of the Lord Thanks. to this house. And we're highly expectant um, of what the Lord is going to do through you and through uh, Benny and through the team and all of you. You're also most welcome in this house as well. We hope and pray that you feel very much at home. Thanks. Bill, tell us about your childhood. Uh, were you the product of a preacher, a preacher's family, yeah. or uh, were you grown up? Did you grow up a total pagan? Yeah. Um, I'm a fifth-generation pastor on my dad's side of the family and fourth on my mom's. Um, but I, I, I like to help people to understand a little bit. I mean, while I grew up in a tremendous environment and uh, grew up hearing the stories, you know of of uh, things that happened 100 years ago and 70 years ago that were, you know, tremendous outpourings of the Spirit. Uh, my parents' goal for me was just to get me to heaven. They never talked to me once about ever preaching. They just wanted me to make it because they were concerned. So, <laughs> so they, ne they never brought, this is a shock to everybody, including me. I took an F in college on oral exam because I didn't want to speak out loud in front of people. So what was your first encounter with the Lord? Well, as a child, um, I had a number of things that happened just in growing up in a, in a, a decent home, a good home, and in a decent Christian environment. I mean, there were a number of things that happened through the years. But, uh, but there was just this moment that came into my life when I was about 19. Could you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> you know... I guess I can. It was. It was just. I said. I said yes. I said yes so completely to God that I forfeited every future decision. It was like. It was like saying yes this time meant I had no more decisions. I said yes so completely that it meant if I sensed He wanted me to go this way and it was the hardest way possible, it didn't matter. It was no longer a consideration. I never, from that point on, it's never been an issue. I, I realize this may not sound theologically correct, but, but I, th I think it is. It never became an issue again to count up the cost because I did that when I said yes. And so it just, it just never mattered ever again. If, if it was a hard task, if it was an impossible task, if it seemed easy or popular, none of those things just mattered at all because I, I felt like I said yes so completely that... Uh, that I could live as though all my decisions were made for me. And I, I realize the Christian life, we, we grow making decisions. But there's this story of this athlete that, that uh, was in this horrible accident. He lost an arm. He actually uh, lost an arm in this accident. And he loved to play sports and he loved to compete. And uh, he was 
obviously troubled by the accident, by the loss of an arm, but he was also wondering what could he do in life to, to keep active, you know, and he finally picked up the game handball, which is like a racquetball but without a racket. And, uh, and he, he became very good. He became the champion of the club that he was a part of. He, uh, he eventually, over the years, became good enough that he won state champion of that particular sport. And the newspaper man interviewed him afterwards, and he says, how is it possible for a man with one arm, one hand, to win in a sport where all of your opponents use both hands? And he says, it's easy, it's options. And he says, what do you mean? He says, when the ball comes off the wall, my opponents have to decide what hand to use. <laughs> so when I said yes, I reduced everything down to one hand. Yeah. Very good. What about... You know, the ministry. Was it soon after that you said yes to a call to the ministry? You know, this really sounds strange, but I don't remember ever being called yep. into the ministry. I never had that experience. I just found myself serving and uh, opportunities open up to serve. And, uh, with my dad, I worked a lot on the streets with, the, in that day, the hippies and that whole era and worked with single adults and stuff like that. It just, just uh, whatever gift would start flourishing, I would just go to work there and, and help. And it was after I was, I was actually in pastoral ministry about five years that I realized maybe I'll stick with it. <laughs> but I honestly don't remember ever having that moment where God said, you're to do this. I, I just never had it. When was your first encounter with the healing presence of the Lord? When did you first see um, and, and really encounter the supernatural dimension of the kingdom of God? To see it or to experience it? To experience it. Um, it would be the late 80s, probably 86, 87 in that era. What was happening in your life at that time? Oh, well, I just, you know, I, I grew up, first of all, I grew up, uh, our background is Pentecostal uh, background. So I grew up, my grandparents sat under Smith Wigglesworth's ministry. They uh, were, my uncle was a soloist for Amy Simple McPherson. So all of these, uh, these people that had, were noted for that kind of ministry, uh, our family knew them and, and were around them. And so I grew up hearing the stories, you know. But somehow it, it only stuck in my head that you had to be special to be used like that because... You know, these people were amazing. And I never qualified. I didn't fit in any possible way. But I couldn't get away from the fact that every page in the Gospels has something going on that is impossible. And it, and it just wouldn't leave me alone. It was like it's, it's still there. And just somehow me supposing you have to be some uniquely gifted person to do this. Uh, nobody ever told me that, but somehow I got it. And, uh, and so I just disqualified myself year after year after year. And finally I just got tired of it. And, I, and so I started, to, uh, I started to just teach it and go after it. And we ended up going to John Wimber conferences twice in 1987. And right after that experience, we started having unusual visitations of God in our meetings. And miracles, of course, started happening much more pronounced. Uh, it, was, it was interesting. After the first conference, I went home depressed. Because every, every single teaching, this was strange. This, this is hard to have this happen. But every teaching I had heard for that entire week. I had taught the exact same thing and strangely used some of the same illustrations that I thought were all mine. And I went, I went home depressed because they had fruit and I just had theology. And I realized, it's, it hit me, it, I realized it is illegal to have truth that you don't put a demand on for anointing that it becomes experienced. And I realized I, I've, I have violated something to think that I could just believe something and that would make it happen. That I could somehow have good theology, teach these principles, that principle, and everything would be fine. And I, I realized this, this isn't any good. And so I went back for a second conference. We started pursuing things at home. 
And uh, we started just taking risks. We started creating an atmosphere where, where God was welcome to do what he wanted. You know, and, uh, and we, had some, we really had some amazing things happen. Now, the miracles today, they're every day. But at that time, you know, if we had one every six months, we'd just tell the story over and over again. You know, we just said, man, you remember in July? That was awesome. You know, we just we just keep the story circulating where we kept fresh in our heart with an appreciation for the miracle power of the Lord. You know, but it wasn't it wasn't frequent, but at least it happened finally. And it happened through normal people. In fact, my first miracle that I ever experienced myself was in a repair a bicycle repair shop. And it was a man in his 40s that was going to have to retire because arthritis was crippling him. He couldn't work the tools. He couldn't reach on the shelves. And I said, you know, I believe God wants to heal you. He was not a believer. And, uh, and uh, I asked him if I could pray for him. He sat down. I prayed. And, uh, and the Lord healed him completely. And he, he, we were both shocked. <laughs> it, was just, it was just the most amazing thing to this day. When I, if I walk into the store, he lives an hour away from where I live now. But if I walk into that store, he, just, he wants to talk about that that happened that day that introduced him to the mercy of God. And, and, uh, I think that's very prophetically significant for your life, that the first healing miracle that you witnessed it is. was an unbeliever. Yeah, it uh, is. We'll come back to that, if we may, just a little yeah. bit later. Um, but for now, tell us where you were at the time in terms of ministry. Uh, were you in uh, Reading, California, or were you somewhere else? No, my dad, uh, I was working with my dad in Reading. Um, he pastored the church we're actually pastoring now. And uh, he was there for like 13, 14 years. I was there for five of those years. And then that's the mother church. They sent us up into the mountains, my wife and I and our kids. And we pastored there for 17 years in a, in a town of 3,500 people. In the town of 3,500, this town was the county seat. It was the big city. It was where people came to shop. And the only 3,500 people is because it was just, it was in mountains surrounded by really tiny communities of 150 and 20 and that sort of thing. And, and that's where we pastored for 17 years. And we were out of the way of everyone, so we didn't bother anyone. We got to experiment a lot. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we found out it's just the best way to learn. You know, when, you te- when I teach my kids how to ride the bicycle, I took them to the park where there was a lot of grass so that when they fell, they'd fall on the grass. Because there'd be no question when you're learning to bike, ride a bike, you're going to fall. So I just tried to make the environment they fell in safe. Mm-hmm. And so that became, a, that became a model that we just used in church, and we just started experimenting. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just stay accountable and uh, keep a culture of honor, keep a culture of accountability, but then take risks, just take huge risks. And then uh, when it doesn't work out good, back up, apologize, and try it again, you know. So it really is how we do life. Uh, And during that season, um, up until sort of the early mid-90s, did you see uh, healing miracles increase in your ministry, or was there a time when it dried up and you were longing for more? Um, We did not see an increase. It was just, it started sporadic. And it continued sporadically. Um, I mean, there were, you know, days or weeks where it was real powerful. But, you know, there may be six, six months or three months or something before anything significant would happen again. And, um, see, at this time, we had a real unusual visitation of the Holy Spirit. I mean, where the presence of God is so, you know, I don't know how to describe it. I don't, I don't know everybody's background, so I don't even know what language to use. I know what, you know, how we describe it, but it's just this presence that just so permeates the room, the building, that you know, your interest is not in miracles. Your interest is, is, is him. You know, I mean, he's the, he's, the, he's the amazing one. And it's just, in fact, we, we pray for the sick because we want him to get what he paid for. So it's our, whole, our whole approach is just that uh, we're indebted to him. And so um, it was just the presence of the Lord that would come. But we, we, didn't, we didn't get increased breakthrough. 
And there was, uh, I was not personally dry. Um, but we weren't getting the breakthrough I was longing for. And I went to Toronto in uh, February of 95. And I told the Lord, I said, God, if you'll touch me again, I'll never change the subject. What I meant by that was this wonderful visitation that we had from the Lord, it was, it was so glorious. We had so many unusual things happen. A lot of the renewal-type manifestations, they were happening in 1987. And, but I didn't know what to do. I didn't, know how to, I, I didn't know how to pastor it. I didn't know how to fuel the fire. You know, I didn't know how to bring the increase. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. All I knew is it was wonderful, and I just kind of let it have a life of its own, and it didn't. You know, fire requires fuel. And uh, you've got to offer him something worth burning. And, uh, and I didn't realize that. And so in February of 95, <clears throat> excuse me, in February of 95, I said, if you touch me again, I'll never change the subject. Which means, which meant to me, I will not add this to what we're doing. I'll make this the only thing we do. And so that was my commitment. If you'll touch me again, I will make what the Spirit of God is doing on the earth. That is what life is about for me. And I don't have anything else to do with my life. So I, I, that was my prayer in going. I went. I didn't have any dramatic experience like many people have had. I've since come very close friends with John and Carol Arnott and Randy Clark and a number of the team. We do a lot of work together, actually. But I didn't have, uh, I tell them even now, I, di- I didn't have any dramatic experience. But I walked into the room and realized this is it. I saw this in miniature in 1987 when nobody told us anything, you know. It just happened. And now it's with thousands of people. And I went home and every Every week from that point on, that, that's only been the, the only subject. You know, there's a lot of things you have to deal with pastorally, but that was been, that's where my heart just burned. So I began to pray after that uh, initial visit. I prayed day and night. I just, I would wake myself up in, in the night. You know, uh, a lot of things can wake you up, but I would wake myself night after night praying. I, I would wake myself because I was praying in my sleep. And I would pray, God, I want more of you. At any cost, I will pay any price. And what I wanted is I wanted to touch me, you know, more deeply. You know, I don't want theory. I don't want to pretend. I don't want to just do stuff externally that looks right and sounds right. I could care less about that. I just, all I want is the authentic gospel. That's all I care for. So, so day and night for... Eight months. I mean, I'd wake myself up in the morning. Throughout the day, I just could hardly think of anything else. I said, God, you've got to touch me. You've got to do something more deep in me. Now, I've already said the yes, you know, that I have no more options. It wasn't, wasn't an issue of devotion to the Lord. It wasn't that at all. It was just like, I just, I had to have him touch me deeper in my life. There had to be an encounter, a power encounter, where, where, I, where I could do it. You know what Jesus told us to do? And uh, so I, I did. I just prayed day and night. And uh, this started in February, in October. End of the month, we had this unusual meeting. And um, we had, uh, I was praying for a friend, and he was just struggling. And I said, Tom, I said, God's going God's to gonna visit you. And it may be the middle of the day, maybe middle of the night. And I told him, I said, it could be three in the morning. And went to bed, you know, I was... Those of you who've been in those meetings, they just, they're eternal. It's called the eternal gospel for a reason. You know, <laughs> one of our elders says, we only bring a watch to church to see if the date changed. You know? <laughs> so we went to bed real late that night, you know. And I was awakened out of sleep, out of a dead sleep. 
to absolutely as wide awake as you can be in a millisecond, and I don't know how to describe it because I wake up kind of slowly. It was dead sleep too, as wide awake as you've ever been in your life. And it's hard to describe, but it was like a thousand volts of electricity pulsating through my body, and I had no control of my limbs. The only thing I could move was my head. And I turned my head to the clock, and it was 3 a.m., exactly. And I said out loud, I said, you set me up. Because, <laughs> you know, when God's dealing with you, all you can think about is what he's saying. I mean, I, you know, my ministry time to this guy, you may be touched at 3 in the morning. That wasn't this monumental moment that I should wake up thinking about. But when he woke me with that power that came into the room or my entire system was short-circuiting, I could think of nothing else. I said, you set me up. And I remembered. In fact, he reminded me, you've been asking for more of me at any cost. You'll pay any price. And so I laid there just tears streaming down my face onto the pillowcase. I remember... I remember just laying there and he just showed me a picture of me trying to teach in front of the people, looking, you know, arms twitching and legs and realizing that nobody's going to believe this is God. This, nobody, nobody I know is going to believe this is God. They're going to want to lock me up. And then I saw the next scene. I was walking in front of my favorite restaurant in town. Same thing. I realized there's not a person in this. I'm going to be an embarrassment to the church I pastor. Not only that, I'm going to be a freak in our city. And the Lord just brought those scenes before me. Then he reminded me that um, Jacob walked with a limp the rest of his life. Mary's called the mother of the illegitimate child all her life. And I realized that um, he wanted to make an exchange with me. Because I said more at any cost. And he wanted whatever... Most of my friends would have told you that I, I didn't have much of a fear of man. Because honestly, I've, I really lived fairly free from that. But I can't say it wasn't there because it's what he went after. So he saw something I was completely unaware of. And it, it was as though he was saying, I will trade you. I will touch you deeply. But you may never get out of this bed. You, you have to understand, I had no control. And I felt like he had touched me so deeply right there that if I said yes, I would lose my ability to function in life as a normal human being. I was sacrificing the right to get up, walk about, be a dad, be a husband, be a pastor, do all the things I'm called to do. And I said, yes, I'll take it. If I get you in the exchange, you can have it all. Do you think it's possible, Bill, and... In a sense, you are the message and you are the answer to this question. But do you think it is possible for us as leaders to move to the next level of effectiveness and fruitfulness without being broken, without weeping like you have and are? Um, is it possible to have the blessing without brokenness? Well, no. No, it's, it's yieldedness. See, faith is an... Faith doesn't come through striving. It comes through surrender. It's the evidence of surrender. It's not the evidence of working hard. Everything that is valuable to us only comes through surrender, through yieldedness. And the Lord is after that. He's after the surrendered heart. And, uh, and there's, you can't get anything. I can't get anything of significance 
by me insisting on my agenda, on my, on my program, my values, even my, my revival values, my values for healing, my values for conversions. I mean, when it's me driving the program, he won't bless it. He just, he, he cannot, he will bless the world before he blesses carnality in the church. The Lord will bless unbelievers. He'll prosper them before he prospers the people of God in their carnality. Yeah, I asked you to say it again because I thought that was very profound. Um, Let's fast forward just a a year or so, Bill. Back in January 94, um, the Lord brought someone to Toronto who had a breaker anointing on their lives, Randy Clark. Yes. Same thing happened in your church in Bethel, uh, Redding, California. Um, uh, Randy Clark came to visit your house as well, just at a point when you were hungry for more and saying, more, Lord. And um, could you just describe a little bit about what happened there? We had, uh, they asked us to come to pastor the church, the mother church. They had us come down from the mountains to take over the the mothership. And and they did so because they wanted a move of God because we had that in the mountains. And immediately, within a month, things began to really break loose in a marvelous way. People were healed week after week, although we didn't know enough to pursue it. It just happened. Cancer would just disappear. Things would happen like that. So Randy, had a, Randy and I had mutual friends that felt like we should get together. So Benny, my wife and I, flew to St. Louis. Randy Clark was the man that was used by the Lord to initially ignite the revival fires, if you will, in Toronto. So a mutual friend set up a time for us at one of Randy's conferences for us to have. We had 20 minutes. So I went into the restaurant, sat down at the table. I told him what was happening in Reading. And he came to us just maybe six months later. And where we were having uh, miracles every week, after Randy came, there was about 400 miracles that week. And we'd never seen anything like it. And Randy had never seen anything like it in North America. He had seen it happen in Brazil and various places, Ukraine but not in North America. And it just exploded. And uh, I don't know if it's been every day since then, but I don't think there was a day that goes by now in the last maybe four or five years anyway where there's not miracles out in public places in our city. I don't think there's there's ever a day that goes by. Because I'll, I'll go to our school. We have a school where we train people in the lifestyle of signs and wonders. And um, it's a full-time school. And I'll ask them on any, any given day, how many of you saw or on a church service on Sunday. How many of you saw miracles this last week outside of church? Either deliverance, conversion, or healing people's bodies. And, uh, and the amount of hands that go up is absolutely stunning. And it's just week after week after week. There's, there's never a time where that's not the case. But it really exploded. Randy took us to a new level through impartation. And, um, and so what we've tried to do since then is create a culture Something that we refer to as a revival culture. A, a culture is what sustains a movement, good movement or bad. Uh, you go to uh, various uh, cities that are the headquarters for various cults around the world, and you will succeed, see that those cults have actually succeeded because they created a culture to sustain their movement. You have to create a system of beliefs, disciplines, practices, relational boundaries, just the way we do life that kind of surround any movement, and it gives it momentum. And when a move of God is not successful in creating a culture to sustain it, it lives and it dies. And so we've been in the search for what kind of culture is it that sustains a move? What is it that God wants in our DNA so that it's not just based on corporate meetings? 
I love the corporate meetings. I love the public breakthroughs. I like that stuff. But what our focus is, is we want to develop the kind of culture where that's our celebration, but the cutting edge is out there. And, uh, and so that's our focus. And so we've worked to create a culture in, uh, in our church family, starting with our staff, our pastoral staff. We've got 30, 31, 32 pastors on our staff. And working first with that group, with the culture of honor, culture of radical generosity, a culture of valuing the report of the Lord. What has God done? We take our staff meetings. And we meet every Wednesday for three hours, sometimes a little over three hours. And we take the first hour and a half to two hours, sometimes two and a half hours. And all we do is report the miracles from the previous week. I've hired a church historian. Her whole job is just to record the miracles. That's, that's what she does. That's her life. She just records miracles. And we'll take that hour and a half to two hours just to talk about what we know that's happened the previous week. And by creating a culture that values the supernatural interventions of God, it keeps people conscious of His intention to reverse impossibilities. And if I don't stay conscious of the God of the impossible, I'll reduce ministry to my ministry gifts. Could you define... Um, a little bit more what you mean by culture of honor and generosity they're really related as you know honor and honorarium they are related money's a big deal to God and uh, and we just we have found just such a pleasure in in giving ourselves away whether it's money whether it's possessions whether it's it doesn't matter what it is the culture of generosity. Our city used to be called, many years ago, used to be called Poverty Flats. And it really has had a poverty spirit over it ever since I've been there, which is, I've been in that area since 1968. And it's always, everything is always second or third class. Things don't get completed. It's just that kind of a oppressed place. Well, when we came to the church 11 years ago, one of the first things I did is I started teaching on kingdom economics and going after that juggler vein of the religious spirit and confronting that poverty mindset. Because the poverty mindset doesn't mean you're poor. It just means you live holding to yourself. And uh, there are people that are very wealthy that have a poverty spirit. Because abundance in the kingdom isn't measured by what you have. It's measured by what you've given away. It's a different kingdom. And so we started, uh, I took a repentance offering at the end of this uh, two Sundays where I taught on this. And... Uh, many thousands of dollars came in. And I said, I'll never talk to you about money for what we're going to get. It'll only be to invest in the kingdom. So I said, I'm taking this. I'm giving it to another church. So I called another pastor in town. I said, Ron, I need to have lunch with you. We had lunch. I gave him a check, pretty substantial check. And he said, he said what's this for? I said, told him what we did. He says, we're behind on our bills. This looks like it's close to exact what we're behind. And he went back to his leadership team. They did the same thing just a few weeks later. They had the largest offering in the history of their church up to that time. They gave it to three other ministries. Started a domino effect through our city where um, a church with a bus ministry would give away their best bus to another church in town with a bus ministry. And suddenly you've got all these churches. You know, I had a dream one night about this church that used to preach against us. And, but I had a dream about them, that we were giving money to them. So I came on a Sunday morning. I said, we're going to take a love offering for her. And I mentioned the church. We just want to honor them because they've been here in the city for 50 years faithfully preaching that Jesus forgives sin. So let's honor them for their, for their role in the kingdom. And so thousands of dollars came in. We sent it over to them to honor them, not to 
one up. Them. It, was, it was important that we came in low. Never told a soul that we did it. They broadcast it all over town. And, uh, and when we did that, things started changing in the city. I know of a couple cases, my wife was one of them, where women would go into a store and somebody would say, oh, I love your purse. And my wife says, well, thank you. And she empties all the context tents into a shopping bag and she gives it to the lady behind the counter. She says, here, I want you to have this. And by going against that spirit of poverty, living in the opposite spirit of what used to rule over the city, that thing gets broken. And we can trace the breakthroughs in the outpouring of the spirit according to where and when we were radically generous. We would be lacking income to pay staff salaries. I'd go into the treasurer's office and say, it's a church over here, they're in a building project, they can't raise enough money for their parking lot. Write me a check, we're going to help them out. And I'd do it in the face of our needs. I'd receive a call from somebody in crisis. We'd all, we'd never, we never turned down anybody. We always would write a check to honor them, even when I knew this would mean we would not have enough to take care of what's on our plate. But what we learned was, is that generosity, it helped to break something that, uh, that controls a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of ministries. From there, we were able to move into a realm of honor. And that's where we celebrate who a person is, not who they aren't. We celebrate who they are in God. Now, you know, if somebody, you hear this a lot, in, in, especially in leadership circles. You know, you'll, we'll talk about somebody, say, well, he's, he's a really good brother. He doesn't have an administrative bone in his body, but he's just a real dear brother. And that's our way of saying he's not a whole person. Well, maybe he's all he's supposed to be. Maybe I'm just supposed to celebrate what God has given him. And that if I require him to function outside of his gift, I'm robbing the body of Christ from who he is. We're supposed to learn how to celebrate one another. And when we do that, we become free to serve where we're gifted. You know, we've got people all over the planet that are doing stuff they hate to do. All over the body of Christ. Leaders, pastors that are trying to fit in Saul's armor. And it's not very fun because it doesn't fit well. And I never, I never succeed. Uh, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire realized is a tree of life. We were designed to have fulfilled desires. We were designed to have fulfilled dreams, to have breakthroughs, to be a part of significant breakthroughs. That's a tree of life. That's what connects us to our, our eternal purpose. We were, we were created and fashioned with that model in mind. And yet ministry just beats that stuff out of people. and We force people to be who they aren't. And so we, we try to bring people in. We have tasks that we need them to do. But then we look for where they excel and begin to fashion things. It's, I'm concerned more about the relationship that I have. I know God gave this person to our team. So I'm going to be interested now what develops around them. Because that's where I want to pour my affirmation, my applause, my giving that person liberty to function in his gift. We all have things that we don't feel we're especially good at, and they're, they're kind of like school for us. They train us and stuff. But, but uh, I want everyone to primarily work you know, in that gift and calling. And so we, just, we work to defer. You know. People will come to me because I'm the senior leader, but it doesn't mean I'm the one that has the anointing for that area. So I'll tell them, I say, oh, you need to talk with Danny here. Danny is the best guy I've ever known in this area. He can help you. And we do this as a, as a staff constantly. Not to get out of work, but instead to say, you know what? Um, you value my position. I want you to value the anointing. That's very good. Um, I, one of the things that I love about you is the way that you walk the radical middle. And uh, this happens in a number of different areas. I want to talk... Um, if I may, without sending people to sleep for a moment, I want to talk theology, um, particularly the theology of healing. Um, it's very interesting. I've seen over the years that there's been a polarity between a kingdom model of healing, um, which reveres, rightly so, the sovereignty of God in the healing, 
uh, process or the healing event. And on the other extreme, the faith model, which seems to locate much more uh, in the human side of the equation in terms of human believing. Um, and I've been unhappy with this either-or for a long time. And then I came across your book about heaven invading earth, and I saw a glorious radical middle between those two things that I've been looking for. And what I love about your book and about your uh, theology of healing is the way in which you talk about the kingdom of heaven, the place where there are no tumors, where there's no deafness and no blindness. Yes, yes. There's no death. There's, there's nothing that yes. you know, currently afflicts us yes. in terms of suffering and infirmity and so forth. Uh, and Jesus said to pray, your kingdom come, kingdom of heaven come. So what you've done is you've talked about the kingdom of heaven um, as your template, as your default position in your theology, but you've also talked a lot about faith and about the importance of our role in really believing that the unseen reality of the rule of God could become present yes. in this person's yes. life as we pray for them. Now, I want to just ask you about that radical middle for a moment because it truly fascinates me, and it's probably the main reason why actually I, I really wanted you to be here, to explore that just for a, a few minutes together. Because I think what man has put asunder, uh, God wants to join back together, yeah. which is a real reverence for the sovereignty and the kingship and the rule of God and a real emphasis on believing. And it's not either or, it's both and. You walk that ra radical middle. Where did that come from? Where did you, where did you discover that? In the Bible? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's... I, I noticed that when I just relied on what I thought was the sovereignty of God, not a lot happened. And so many, many believers, their entire life is wrapped up in praying for breakthrough. And then they can blame the outcome or the lack thereof on God. When I'm supposed to be a breakthrough. I'm supposed to be a living revival. I am supposed to be God's invasion into the lives of humanity. It's why he gave us both power and authority. Power is in any gathering where we, as leaders, all of us have this question. We want to know what God's doing. We're trying to catch that wave of his presence. What, you know, what are you doing in this gathering? We don't have any ideas that we want to twist God's arm to carry out our agenda. I mean, all, we're all smart enough to know that our ideas don't at all compare with the greatness of his plan. So all I'm trying to do in a gathering is trying to catch that wave of his work, of his dealing. But when you're at the market and a woman's standing in front of you with a hearing aid on, there is no worship team to set the mood. There is no preaching over the loudspeaker to stir up faith in the hearers. You're going to have to move out of something different. It's not going to be out of the wave of God's power is going to be out of authority. And faith is what connects you to your authority. So I describe it this way. When we move in power, we're catching a wave. When we move in authority, we start a wave. That's interesting because it puts much more responsibility yes. on us to decide. We talked about choices yes. earlier. Um, I have become convinced over the last year and a half that by and large in the Western nations, and especially in the renewed parts of the church, we have become quite passive in our faith. Yeah. And I think passive faith is a contradiction in terms. I think 
In the New Testament, faith is always active, it's relational, it's a verb, it's personal. It's, there's responsibility, there's a choice to believe. And I've noticed, and this offends some people, but when I'm in cultures where people really believe, more things happen. So I know that there's the sovereignty of God, there's the kingdom of heaven, but I know also that there's a choice to start an invasion. And I think, I wonder whether we're aggressive enough in the West in our believing. I wonder whether we're desperate enough for the kingdom of God in our our hearts. I I wonder deeply about that. And I love it when I come into contexts where I find a real desperation and an aggressive faith because you definitely see miracles there. But I, I worry about, for example, the house of the Anglican church where so many of us have become used to survival, not revival. Yeah. That it's a question of existence hanging on somehow. If we just hold on to this plot of ground and with our armor shot to pieces, still when we die have this flag yeah. in our hands, tattered though it may be, this is victory. Well, in some parts of the world that might be true, but it's not sufficient for me right now in the West, in the Anglican Church. I'd like to believe there's something more. And for those of you who are not part of the Church of England, you know, thank the Lord. But it's it's... <laughs> It's, it's really, it can be so demoralizing and so depressing sure. when you come across that passive faith. And what I love about your, your writing and your teaching is your urging of people to choose to believe and to pursue and to be hungry. And we've seen it in you tonight that you haven't yeah. lost that. You've no. got it all over you. You know, I believe so strong in the sovereignty of God, but I think our ignorance in the subject has kept us from the realm of the kingdom. And we've embraced a misunderstanding to the point where we've lost the presence and the dynamic demonstration of the power of God so that we could hold to a misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God. He has willed certain things to be done. God is not willing that any should perish. I cannot sit back and say, well, if he wants to save him, he'll save him. That's, that's irresponsibility on my part. It's the same in the realm of healing. I cannot sit back and wait for a voice to tell me it's time to pray. If somebody is hurting, do I have have enough common sense to hurt because they hurt? Well, if I hurt because they hurt, I've moved in the first phase of a miracle. They've captured my heart. And if I can keep from sympathy and stay in compassion, I can help to be a tool that brings them into a miracle. Sympathy is the counterfeit of compassion because it affirms their problem and it locks them in without a solution. It keeps them in a cycle of needing my comfort just to stay alive and survive that problem. But compassion always has an answer. It always goes in, it weeps with those who weep, but it comes to bring them out of the situation. And, uh, you know, you, you don't... Jesus knew what the Father was doing a whole bunch of different ways. And sometimes it was the response of the person who came to him, the woman who touches the edge of his garment. He, had, he didn't initiate that. It was, it was put upon him, but he recognized where the life was, and he would flow with that. And uh, it's, it's just a big deal that we, that we see what you tolerate will dominate. Anything that we allow as a lifestyle of, of a sickness, of suffering, of pain, of these things, well, it's just life. Oh, it's just what happens when you're older in age. And, and those kinds of things that we buy into, uh, they are agreements with the enemy. And the enemy has no authority of his own. So he can only work out of false authority. And he gets that by bringing God's people into agreement. When we agree with him, we empower him. And so he just talks. I mean, he couldn't possess Adam and Eve in the garden. All he could do was talk until they agreed. And when they agreed, he got the keys of authority 
or the kingdoms of the earth. And, and Jesus suffered, died, came back with the keys of authority to empower his people to get back to plan A, and that's it's time to subdue the earth. And so God has this commission that's never changed. And he didn't say, okay, change the plans. Uh, he, he just didn't do that. He just sent his son to recover all that we had lost and then come back in the commission and say, all right, you've got the authority. The heavens were made for God. The earth was made for man. Here are the keys. Now do what I assigned you to do in the first place. And that's why it's the message of the kingdom. It's not the message of salvation. That's a part of it. It's not message of prosperity. It's not the message of healing. It's the message of the kingdom. The king's domain It's the realm of the king of kings dominion over everything that is out of order with his world. And that's the message. And when you preach it, it manifests. Whatever you talk about starts to manifest. So whether it's in conversation, whether it's in preaching from a pulpit, from radio, TV, wherever it is, what we declare is what paves the way for reality. It helps to shape the reality that we're going to experience. Yeah, I believe that totally. Um, let me ask you about uh, you know, the really thorny question, which is, yep, the kingdom of heaven, human believing. But there are times when, when uh, for all our believing and for all our praying and for all our compassion, all our loving, we see like friends of ours like Jack Frost yes. dying of cancer and yes. going home to the Father. And all of us need to confront that in integrity and authenticity and um, make room for that without compromising on who God is. So how do you talk about that, Bill? Well, this is, this is probably, probably the stickiest part of what I do because I, I, don't, I don't have a theology that allows for that. Does it happen? Yes. But Jesus Christ is perfect theology. He messed up every funeral he attended, including his own. <laughs> Why did he raise the dead? Because not everyone dies in God's timing. You know, we stand up as pastors and say, we don't know why this five-year-old died, but we know God can use it. There's no question God can use every situation for his glory, and he does. He can use Jack Frost's death for his glory. There's no question. But he did not design the disease. He did not create that as a divine moment for Jack to die. I won't say that. Why? Because you cannot find it in Jesus' life. He is perfect theology. Every person he came to and every person that came to him was touched, was healed. That's the only acceptable standard for me. So I have one of two options. When there's not a breakthrough, I can blame God or I can blame me and neither acceptable. I'm not going to do guilt and shame because those are tools of religion just to create a form in me that has no power. And I'm not going to blame God so that I back away, create a theology that says, well, sometimes God just wills. You know, the pool of Bethesda, one guy was healed, many were around the pool that weren't healed. The Bible celebrates the guy that was healed. If it happened today, we'd be writing articles that prove God doesn't always want to heal the sick because we focus on what he hasn't done instead of what he has done. And when you focus on what he hasn't done, you create the atmosphere where offense and unbelief is nurtured. When you focus on what he's done, you become the solution for what he hasn't yet done. To what extent do you think in the theology, the perfect theology of Jesus, there is a warfare worldview as well um, to which this question is hugely relevant? Um, you talk about blaming God, you talk about blaming yourself, um, but there's also a third person in the exactly. equation in this whole dynamic of uh, spiritual warfare, and that's the enemy. And um, Jesus had a warfare worldview, I think, to quote yeah. Professor Gregory Boyd, and I, I wonder if that's, I agree. That, that's part of it too. Uh, there's just things we don't understand. You know, we, we tend to oversimplify. Well, I prayed my best prayer, it didn't come about, therefore God willed it not to happen, or... There must be hidden sin in my life. 
And so it's kind of like the only two grids we can work with, not realizing there's another element at work that we don't yet know how that functions. We don't yet know how to deal with that. That's why when the disciples had a situation where they, where they didn't bring deliverance to the child, Jesus said this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. And then Jesus didn't pray or fast. Because we tend to pray and fast for specific situations. Jesus prayed and fasted into a lifestyle. He prayed for a realm in God, not for a person to be well. And it's a difference. There are realms available in God that we can live in. They're not supposed to be sporadic experiences. They're they're supposed to be sustainable realms in God, lifestyles. One of the other... I mean, we're going to continue wrestling with these issues, I'm sure, and that's good. We should, as long as we're practicing healing. Um, But I think with um, the other area of the radical middle, the other area of your theology where I see you integrating things that I think others have tended to polarize is in the whole arena of where healing happens. You don't just see it as something for the four walls of the church in this environment. You have a great vision, and you're... Church has a history of, of taking it out onto the streets, into the shopping mall. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Has that always been there, that emphasis of both and? Or uh, was there a time when, when it was inside but not outside the house? Well, it started in the house. You can't give away what you don't have. So it started with God's visitation upon us. But it has always been a part of our, of our bent that the real life happens out there. So I don't remember a day when that wasn't how we thought, how we taught. But, you know, you have to have it happening before you can give it. And once it started, it was very soon thereafter it started happening in public places. And, um, and we now have more miracles outside of the four walls of church than we do inside. Substantially more. Give us some examples. Uh, story, testimony. Um, one of our guys is in the front of a shopping mall. He's in a drum circle. The guys with the congas and they're playing 20 or 30 of them. He sees a man limp by, and so he leaves the drum circle because we've told our folks that you see anybody limping, anybody with crutches, a wheelchair, anyone who has a cast on, a neck brace, those are legal targets. (laughs) And so he followed the man into the mall, and he said, "Uh, excuse me, sir, what's wrong? And he made the motion of of a gun but never said anything. And his family was there and said he was shot. He says, well, can I pray for him? And he said, sure. So he prayed for him, and the man had some serious injury in his hip area. He was instantly healed. And, uh, and then he turned to the family and said, Can this man not speak? And they said, No, he's never spoken a word in his life. He says, Well, can I pray for that? And they said, Yeah. <laughs> They're pretty excited by now. And uh, he laid his hands on him and began to pray, and Command speech to be loosed. And the first word out of the man's mouth was Jesus. The family got all excited and said, say something else. And he said, God. So so it's it's a great start to conversation right there. We've actually had two mute individuals healed in the shopping mall. Uh, We had a guy uh, going to, uh, he went in uh, 10 o'clock at night into a grocery store to buy donuts. And as he's walking by the cash register, he sees a woman with a hearing aid on and and, uh, goes over to her and says, excuse me, ma'am, I know you have a hearing aid on. Can I pray for you? Come to find out she's 100% deaf in one ear and 50% in the other. And so she says, sure. He ends up praying for her. Both ears are completely healed. Well, she's just crying at the, at the counter, saying, this is God. The gal behind the counter that's serving her, you know, the cashier, is saying, she's crying. She's saying, this is God. 
And our young man said, this is God. So they were all in agreement, this was God. And he turns to the gal that worked in the store and he said, uh, he said, God wants to do more in this store tonight. Can I use the intercom? And she looked around for a moment and she said, this is God. And showed him how to use the microphone. So he got the microphone and he says, attention shoppers. God just came into the store and healed a woman who was deaf at cash register number 10. And then he has the woman, she says, ma'am, come here. She comes over and she tells the story of her healing at the, at the cash register. He takes the microphone back and he says, God wants to do more in this store tonight. I heard the words new hip, carpal tunnel. Somebody needs a new hip, carpal tunnel syndrome. And he starts giving these words of knowledge. And he says, if you want prayer, meet me at cash register number 10. <laughs> and so they start coming from all over the store. A crowd forms around the cash register. A woman comes up in an electric uh, chair. She wheels up in between the whole group, just right in the middle of the group. She goes, I'm the new hip. And he prays for her. She gets out of the chair, walks in front of everybody. He's completely healed. She needed a new hip. She's not completely healed. People are stunned. A guy pushes his way through the crowd. It's like in the Bible. Pushes his way through the crowd. He says, I'm a piano teacher. I do concerts. I can't play. His carpal tunnel is so bad, his hands are numb. They're, you know, they just don't function right. Nerve damage. And he, he says, what, do you think God would heal me? He says, well, of course. He prays for him. His hands turn to fire. He says, my hands are on fire. And we tell our people, hot is good. So he's, he's going, my hands are on fire in moments. He's completely healed. And others were healed when he was through. He realized, you know, I got a crowd. I might as well preach. So, so he did. So he just preached the gospel to the crowd, asked for those who wanted to surrender their life to Christ. They raised their hands. He prayed with them. And he forgot to buy his donuts. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's just, you know, some are very simple stories. Some are extreme. We have people that meet together. They do what they call treasure hunts. They get four or five people, and I'll pray. They say, oh, God, just say something to me. And so somebody may get red shirt. Somebody else may get the name of a store. Somebody would get the name of a person, get the name of a disease. So they put them all on a list, and they go, they say, well, okay, let's go to that store. So they go to the store, and they start looking for somebody with a red shirt. They see somebody with a red shirt, and they go up to him and say, by the way, is your name Roger? And the guy says, yes, it is. How did you know? And they say, well, we were on a treasure hunt. God showed us these things, and see, we have your name right here. By the way, do you have arthritis in your back? And he goes, I do. How did you know that? And they just, all different people, just contributed something to the treasure hunt. And they show him, see, well, your name's right here, the arthritis. And so they pray for him, and he's healed in the store. And this happens just week after week after week. So. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, I love the idea of a treasure hunt like that. Yeah. Um, many people here will want to know, what do we have to do intentionally before God to actually see more? I think everybody here, unless they're spiritually dead, wants to see more. We want to see more yeah. of God, first of all. I mean, we're not fixated on the gifts, but on the giver. We want to see more um, of him and in the process see more of him life, or changing lives, you yeah. know, forgiving yeah, sinners, it. healing the sick, that's setting it. the captives free. So. You know, kind of what, what do we need to do to press in um, to the next level? And it may be for some the first level. I can only tell you what I do. Um, the first thing is, is you, you've got to realize that it's not optional. We're not talking about adding a nice feature to a new car that we're buying. We're talking about the heart and soul of the gospel. You know, we go away for years, many, for training and ministry and never get taught to do what Jesus did. 
We have to stop accepting false standards for authentic ministry. He said, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, cleanse lepers. And whatever else you do is great, but make sure you're doing that. And we can't accept another standard. So there has to be a shift here that is intolerant of a false standard. Secondly, it has to move me to prayer, to encountering God, the best I know how. Whether it's fasting and prayer or assisting my devotion, doesn't matter. But just regularly before God, say, God, I'm unhappy with a life without power. I'm not interested in receiving credit, but I want to be involved. I've told I don't, it doesn't have to happen through me. I just want to be in the room. I just want to be in the room when it happens. And, uh, and most of what we do, I have nothing to do with it. I don't touch a lot of people. They get healed throughout the meetings because it's the church that we have prayed for. And, uh, and so you have, to, you have to, in your private life, cry out to God. Secondly, you can't sit and wait. You have to immediately take risk. If you ask for him to do something, you've got to find out if you got it. And you're not going to know if you got it if you don't get out there and try. So it's a lifestyle of risk. You have to create room for God to do something. He's the extravagant one. All we do is make room for him to come. And, uh, and so there has to be that level. Fourthly, the, the risk thing is essential. The fourth thing is I make sure that I have times of impartation where I receive from people. I don't care if they've been doing it for 50 years and they have a very notable, famous ministry or it's a new believer that has this amazing breakthrough and he's been saved for a year. I don't care. Pray for me. I, I need more. It may be a descendant. You know, like I never got to meet Wimber, but I've had his 13-year-old granddaughter pray for me. I just, I just knelt down over a chair. I said, your family just, God did something in your family that just has impacted the world. I'm so hungry. I'd really appreciate it if you'd pray for me. She just laid her hands on me and began to pray, her and her friend. It was just powerful. You know, you just you look for that unseen element called that grace that God puts into people's lives. And you realize, you know, it can be imparted. I've, I've, just, I've just come to receive. So pray for me. And, uh, and look for opportunities where, where, where there can be times where somebody can pray for you. And maybe you never can get to the guy. You know, he's 50 rows from where you are and you can't get him to pray for you. But somehow sitting in a place of honor, whether I'm in the room or the guy's on TV, you receive the reward of the prophet when you honor him as a prophet. If I honor a prophet as a prophet, I receive the prophet's reward. If I honor a prophet as a brother, I'm going to receive a brother's reward. You have to esteem the gift. And once you esteem the fact that this man is a friend of God, this man is one God likes to be with, I'm going to honor him for that gift. And whether he ever gets to lay hands on me or I sit just watching him on TV, there's something that comes from his life and his ministry that impacts me. It's grace. And the grace from his life makes my motor run differently. It changes how I function. And that's back to the culture of honor. It's a big part of how we do life, is that we've got to esteem who people are, not who they're not. Celebrate their grace that God's given them and how well they function in it. And what happens is it makes us more complete people. So just doing those things helps to just create a momentum where miracles just start happening. Once they happen, they have to be reported. The culture of testimony is huge. It's every one of Israel's backslidings, I believe, started when they stopped talking about the supernatural interventions of God. Because when you stop talking about the supernatural interventions of God, you expect them less. When you expect them less, they happen even less. When they happen even less, you talk about them even less. And there's this cause and effect, this downward spiral, where pretty soon you're completely unconscious of the God who invades the impossible. 
And I, I owe it to everybody around me to stay conscious. That's why we created a culture that celebrates the testimony. It's not just parading people up front. It's just we're constantly giving good news. We constantly give the reports. You give the breakthrough, give the report on the breakthrough, and watch what happens. And, uh, and when you do that, you, you start creating a momentum. Because if it's, if it's just led by us, if it's just led by us as leaders, and we're the only ones doing it, it's not going to last long. Because there's just a fatigue element. But when you have a movement where there are, there, you know, over time now, now after 11 years, there are hundreds and hundreds of people that go after this every day. And what takes place in our city, you just, you just wouldn't believe it. I mean, it's not an entirely safe city yet, but it is impacting so many parts of the culture of our city, from the educational system, the political system, the business arena. All these realms are being impacted because hundreds of people are geared up every week. And um, so it's like, it's like you take care of this internal stuff, then you start taking the risk, and then you create a momentum. And when you do that, it's fun. You said uh, to me earlier that there were two nations that the Lord had really put on your heart, Australia and the United Kingdom. Yes. And uh, we're so thrilled about particularly the United Kingdom. Uh, <laughs> Why was having just lost 5-0 in the cricket to the Australians. Um, well, bless them, Lord. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I met you last year in, in, in the UK, and yes. so you've been a couple of times now. What are you sensing? Are you sensing that God is on the move yes. in this country? Absolutely. And, and what are you sensing in terms of uh, the kingdom, revival, healing, those sorts of things in this nation? You're more ready than you think. There's, I had this happen several years ago in Australia. They have been without a move of God for so long. And yet when I got there, this is a, forgive this illustration, it doesn't do justice and it doesn't honor in the way it should, but I, it's what comes to my mind. My dad used to talk about when they moved chickens from one farm to another and they would tie the feet. And after they'd untie them, they'd put them on the ground, but they'd still lay there because they thought they were still tied up. And, uh, and we went down there and there was such a freedom. It was the same freedom we could feel over, over our city. And we went there. It wasn't that they disbelieved that, but they still were thinking in terms of their old identity. And I said, wait a minute, this is an open heaven. You guys don't realize how good you have it. This, this is what we're used to. You've got it. So let's just go for it. And they, and they did. When we came here, there was a cleanness. I don't know how to describe it because I would have never said it was unclean a year ago. But there's a cleanness, a purity in the hunger that I witnessed this year when we came that really startled me. Startled me not because I thought, boy, you know, it's a very dirty place. I didn't have that feeling last year. I thought, this is great. Let's just go for it. But when we came back this year, it's, it's very noticeable that there's something that has been broken in the airwaves. You guys have been doing something where there is an opportunity that's upon you that's a lot bigger than probably any of us could imagine. And it's here now. It's not coming. It's not like someday it's upon us. Well, let's do whatever we need to do. We, just, we position ourselves to move with him because you've been crying out for something that's upon us. And uh, there's, nothing's impossible. There's no limits. The Spirit of God was given, without, given to us without measure. We set up all the measurements. All the restrictions are on our end. All the boundaries are on our end. They're not on His. And uh, we have to... Uh, I tell our folks, I say, listen, I will receive no warnings of possible excess from anyone who is satisfied with the lack. 
I don't let the inexperienced tell me what I can experience. I don't let anybody else set those boundaries for me. It's got to be in Scripture and accountable with people of like heart and mind. And then we just live in a culture of risk. And it doesn't make everyone comfortable, but we're okay with that. Not everyone's supposed to be with us. But we've got to get breakthrough. We've got to get breakthrough. You know, we, we, uh, we've got to get breakthrough. We've got to, we have to be more successful in raising the dead. We, our team spent four hours with somebody this week here in the UK. Didn't get a breakthrough. Four weeks ago, we had a young man, 20 years old, died. And uh, our team was with him through the night after his death. Didn't get the breakthrough. Now, we've had breakthrough. We've seen, uh, we've seen in fact, in the UK, we had a, a baby that uh, died in the womb. Uh, five consultants examined the lady, told her not only would she die, as the baby did, but she would die if they didn't let them remove the child. She came to a meeting we had in rugby, and the Lord raised the baby from the dead in the womb. Today as a very happy, alive baby boy. We had our students actually commissioned a church in Mexico for signs and wonders miracles lifestyle. They went and found a dead man and raised him from the dead. We had our students raise a woman from the dead in the streets of San Francisco about three years ago. So we have token breakthroughs, but they're not consistent enough. And uh, the greatest ministry I know of has raised uh, about 300 from the dead, but it's only one in 10. They prayed for 3,000. And uh, one in 10 is not good enough because Jesus did it every time. And so instead of creating a theology that allows for one in 10, we'll pursue believing every time is the one. And not change. See, we cannot lower the standard of Scripture to our level of experience. Now, my level of experience is here. The standard of Scripture is here. My level of experience used to be here. So I'm going in the right direction. But he and I are both working on the distance, trying to close the distance, because it's the only acceptable standard. Now, I don't do guilt and shame. I don't create theology that makes him the bad guy. There is, we are in a war. And I understand that. I don't understand how it all works. But I only have one ambition, and I have nothing else to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> my final thing, because we've got a lot of leaders here tonight, this is my final question. Um, we have leaders of our mid-sized communities, leadership teams from those, leaders from places like Scotland and the clan. Welcome to you guys. They're, if you get invited to the clan in Scotland, do say yes. They are really great people. Um, someone from the Shetlands here, where's Jamie? And all over the place, we've got lots and lots of leaders from far and near. Can you give to perhaps one final word of encouragement in this whole area to the folks gathered? Ask God to change your mind. The renewed mind is the most consistent way to demonstrate the miraculous. Because Romans 12 says, Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove the will of God. What is the will of God? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The renewed mind displays the kingdom. The renewed mind sees from heaven towards earth. You know, your mind's renewed when the impossible looks logical. The mind of Christ is where you think things that the Holy Spirit will say amen to. I can't afford to think things about me that he's not thinking. I review prophecies. I review promises. 
They're a steady part of my diet. I review them constantly because I can't afford to have thoughts in my head he doesn't have in his. And it's really easy to come to a conclusion and an opinion that he's not a part of. From my experience, from what somebody said, from my failure, from my attempts, and it didn't work out. All those things, they shape how we think. And we, we pray one thing, we cry out for one thing, we pursue one thing, but think completely different. When Jesus announced the responsibility of, of our lives to repent, the word means to change the way you think. See, most Christians repent enough to see the to get forgiven, but not enough to see the kingdom. And he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, you're turning from something to something. Christians, they repent from something, but never come into focus of an unseen element that is supposed to be the world, the realm from which we live. We live from heaven towards earth. That's what it means to be seated in heavenly places. Getting the mind of Christ is to see from his perspective. There's no anxiety there. Anxiety and fear is just agreement with the enemy. It just empowers it. There's no anxiety there. There's nothing but peace. There's nothing but confidence. We call it a lot of different things, but it's living from his realm, from his dominion towards earth. Learning how to do that is probably a lifelong project. You know, I'm just scratching the surface, but I'm on the journey. It's the journey I said yes to. And I can feel when I'm starting to feed myself emotionally, mentally, from an inferior kingdom. Because inferior results are the only expected results. But when you feed from his world, you live from his world towards earth, from the realm of nothing being impossible, not just a concept, not just a nice sermon title, but an authentic experience of daily seeing the impossibilities of of life, bending their knee to the name Jesus. That reinforces why I'm alive. Every religion in the world has a cross of some sort, self-denial. They all fast. They all believe in giving. They all believe in some way of denying yourself. Christianity is the only one with a resurrection. So the gospel is seen with a resurrection power that needs an impossibility to attack. We keep, you know, the, the things that are held up as, God, as the evidence that God is with us as we hold up things that any charitable group in the country could accomplish. Well, we built this building with God's help, and, that, and I believe in that. And I'm thankful for that, but the group down the road can do that. They don't even have God. So what is there that they can't do that we can do? See, the millions of dollars and the thousands of partners that help you in a project, they can't raise that baby in the womb from the dead, but you can. The treasure you have, the inheritance you have, the spirit of the resurrected Christ that is in you and he wants out, that can fix that problem. And that's where we live. We live in that tension of I am looking for another impossibility to invade because my assignment is to demonstrate the resurrection. And the resurrection is only, can only be demonstrated where there's death, where there's loss, where something has no hope. That's my assignment. And we've got to put this authentic gospel on the edge where it can be displayed the best. And that's where it's humanly impossible to achieve what we have said our life is all about. The other stuff, the buildings of buildings, getting the committees together, doing all the things, that's an essential part of life. It builds yet another element of life that's important. But if I'm not invading the impossible, I'm not happy. There's got to be the confrontation, because it's the only way you can really see, is there a resurrection or not? And every time we confront the impossible, that's when we demonstrate this authentic gospel that is known 
by the spirit of the resurrected Christ that is in us. And he wants out. I think one of the problems um, with the church in which I operate, I mean, you know, nationally, is that we live with the impossible the whole time. And we live with it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? We, I do. we live with it. And we're supposed I to do. attack it. And I think what you, uh, what you have given us tonight, other than a whole tranche of words of wisdom, did you notice them? I hope you wrote them down. I'm going to have to get the tape and write them down later. Um, I think you, you are you're bringing an atmosphere of faith and hope uh, to us. Awesome. And your word about the United Kingdom is immensely encouraging. I witness to it totally. Um, I, I believe that is absolutely right. The Lord said to me last year, John 4, the hour is coming and now is. Yeah. In other words, don't just look in the future. It's now, it now is. So yes. I really feel that's absolutely right. Bill, we want to thank you for what you've shared this evening in this interview because it has been incredibly revealing. And I believe it has set a foundation for the rest of this conference yeah. where yeah. I know we're going to see um, the Lord yeah. move yeah. in power. We prayed and sang at the beginning, show us your power, yes. Lord, and we're longing for that. So I'd, I'd love it if we could just say thank you to Bill before you start to minister. Thanks. So can we express our thanks to him? Is there anything you want me to do in particular?